Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's a hot one. That's right. It's a hot, hot summer because the release the butthole cut tour is back at it with Wizard and the Bruiser and Page Seven. Holden, where are we going? In July, we'll be in Oklahoma City, then Kansas City, then St. Louis, Missouri. July 11th, we'll be in Oklahoma City. July 12th, Kansas City, and rounding it out with July 13th, St. Louis. Be there. Where can we get them tickets, Jake? Oh, uh, you just got to go to lastpodcastnetwork.com for tickets. For tickets, you got to go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Help us finally release that (laughs) butthole cut. It's the only way. That's right. It is your whip wielding, uh, one liner slinging, uh, bruiser holding McNeely. The pin is mightier than the sword, Jake. What do you got for me? And it's me, me, Butt Williams, the greaser with a heart of gold. Hey, don't touch the hair, Jack. How dare you? There are so many iconic characters. Just be a snake. I'd rather than than. Hey, Daddy-o, we got to get that crystal skull. You dig? Oh, my God. Also, you're my father. You are my father. The aliens are interdimensional. Yeah, no, it's not aliens. It's not aliens. Don't worry, guys. It's not aliens. So stop trying to make it aliens. Um, yeah, we're going to talk about the whole franchise, including that one movie. But come on, Jake, you're burying the lead. I mean, Raiders Lost <laughs> Ark, Temple of Doom, The Last Crusade, and the upcoming Dial of Destiny will be out upon uh, the release of this recording. will already be out. I'm going to try to catch it in the theater. Uh, my my damn self. Damn, I'm cussing. I'm cursing today, Jake. My damn hell. Self, I'm going to go to the theater. An 80-year-old Harrison Ford. Yeah, unbelievable. Crushing it. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? It's a real... Yeah, yeah. I believe it's... I think the original subtitle was The Irishman. Uh, They do some age-down stuff as well, apparently. And also, shout out to the Indiana Jones Stunt Spectacular Show at Disney World. Uh, 
running for like 35 years and not a single fatality, not a single tourist has wandered into a gasoline fire, (laughs) despite, Mm -hmm. you'd think one, you'd think one fat, sweaty Orlando tourist would just be like, I bet they're hiding the good shit in this bag of gasoline. (laughs) Right, totally. And at one point, I believe Sub-Zero was an attendee and still no fatalities whatsoever. It's unbelievable. Uh, um, So yeah, let's get into the gush, Jake, because I've got a big fat, dirty, Mm. wet, viscous gush for you. I mean, what is my childhood without Indiana Jones? It goes hand in hand. I know we've covered a lot of Spielberg on here, but that's because... There's there's such a fandom around his work. He was and the fucking dream weaver of the like yeah. he's a, you know the, all the shit that people say Stanley did Steven Spielberg actually did like he was he just created these worlds and and, and George Lucas let's not leave that man out as well that pudgy <laughs> little guy it feels like the recurring story of a lot of these uh, behind the scenes stories is George Lucas had this idea and then smarter, more coherent people were like, okay, <laughs> what if we did something that made sense, George? Yeah, and even like, Lawrence uh, Kasdan had yeah. a little hand in, in oh, the development okay. of Indiana Jones. Right. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, oh, oh, that makes more sense if we had characters that people liked doing things they understand. Oh, I, uh, I yeah. think I'm going to need a rendition of It's Not Easy Being Lawrence Kasdan at some <laughs> point, Jake. Uh, yeah, I, my whole childhood, I have so many weird, I have a weird-ass early ass memory of Indiana Jones to the point where when I finally saw the movie, I was like, oh, that's why that's that. Mm -hmm. I think I talked about it in our Sunday study session, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew every Sunday at 5 p.m. ET. We uh, cover whatever we're covering. We watch Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I talked about how I have this weird early memory of having one of those Fisher Price record players that was like, I can't even believe this existed. Where you had little kid records, and I think there was even like a there was either a booklet to follow along with images, or even what what's the thing where you put it up to your head and you flip the viewmaster. A viewmaster might have even been a viewmaster that went along with the record, and so you could listen to the record and like look at the little parts. And it did a incredibly censored, abridged version of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Obviously, I didn't see a man's face melt off or anything, but it's one of my like earliest, vaguest memories. But they did go into it was weird how in the uh, Viewmaster slideshow she was, uh, and then Marion Ravenwood said, "I was a kid back then," <laughs> and doing the math, that means she was sixteen and <laughs> he was twenty-seven. Unbelievable! That's fucked up. Oh, kids. Things were different in the, <laughs> even in the eighties. It was the thirties. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially. In the 30s. Or maybe the 20s. Actually, they thought, the, the, they thought babies should smoke cigarettes. They were insane <laughs> back then. But uh, I remember even that warehouse closing scene being one of the pictures and being like, what the fuck does this even mm. mean? Like, why is this end at a, in just a boring warehouse? So, uh, yeah, I mean, Indiana Jones goes back as far as I can remember, in other words. And I think after that, though, we have a funny relationship with the franchise. I think us youths Mm -hmm. because right you probably if you're like me i was most acquainted with temple of doom at first Mm -hmm. because it was the middle chapter even though it was like the darker one i was kind of weird to see everybody refer to it as the dark one because to me it was the kid one it was like campier it was over the top with all the gross stuff and mm-hmm. the bugs and the and the ripping the heart out of the guy and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, I had to turn away. It was like a large Marge scenario. You know, I had to hide behind the couch for certain scenes. And I kind of remember like Temple of Doom and even Last Crusade being a little more in my wheelhouse for a while. And Raiders was like the adult, mm-hmm. more adult Indiana Jones film that had the 
horror ending that I was like terrified of, even to the point I didn't even want it like on the screen. But I mean, all of them were just constantly in rotation in my childhood, growing up through my, you know, through my teen years um, to the point where it was like to be a fan of it didn't even make sense to me because it was just like it's just the soundtrack of your fucking life. I mean, it was always on daytime television. It was always on HBO. It was incredible. So one of the things that I feel like uh, was one of the great revelations when doing the research this week was the fact that. Despite what the Disney Corporation, despite what T-shirt salespeople want, despite like the conglomerated efforts of the Funkofication of fandom, Indiana Jones really isn't a franchise. It is a series of movies starring Harrison Ford. Yeah. At the end of the day, no kid wants an Indiana Jones action figure. No kid wants to like watch an Indiana Jones cartoon series. No kid want like it's just these are a series of films. You know, they made like side books. Nobody read them. They made comic books. Nobody read right. them. They made video games. They were all shitty except for like some of the LucasArts point and click adventure games like Fate of Atlantis. I enjoyed, the, the, I enjoyed Young Indy uh, as a kid. I definitely remember watching a lot of that. Well, that was an educational series yes. where, you know, sometimes he'd be fighting in World War One, and other times he'd be a waiter learning about the history of jazz music. <laughs> So, you know, it just never quite became this all-consuming thing that Marvel superheroes, that Star Wars, that Disney movies, that, you know, all this stuff kind of uh, has aspired to be. And Indiana Jones almost stands out in the fact that it doesn't quite lend itself to the franchisification that a lot of these similar 80s properties have become. And I think a lot of it has to do with... It's the Harrison Ford show, man. It is his just raw charisma, his like good looks and just the fact that he does, you know, what any great actor can do, especially an action actor, which is generate this level of confidence and capability and competence, but then also do that slapstick comedy like, oh, I'm in over my head, like attitude that very few people can pull off without being annoying. And it just... You know, uh, there was a quote where I think it was Harrison Ford doing uh, an interview for this upcoming Dial of Destiny thing. And they're like, so who do you think will replace uh, Indiana Jones when you're gone? And he's like, when I'm gone, Indiana Jones is gone. I'm In Indiana fact, Jones. <laughs> I feel like they tried to make Mutt happen and Mutt did not happen in a huge way. So um, if anything, it was going to be that. Yeah. I don't know when else in the program we're going to acknowledge this, but the Mandela effect of in the movie, uh, Shia LaBeouf putting on the hat and then Harrison Ford grabs the hat right at the end and says like in your dreams, kid, or like not this time or like delivering. <laughs> I rewatched King of the Crystal Skull. That line is not in there. It's a Berenstain bear things. Everybody remembers that line in there and they either changed it post. Nobody knows what the deal is. Weird. Yeah. I don't know. I it's there's never going to be a point to acknowledge that. I just wanted to acknowledge that. <laughs> well, I, I I don't even know what else there is to say. I feel like these movies have everything when it comes to like the summer blockbuster, the great leading man, great a lot of times great leading ladies. Uh, you, I'm Kate Capshaw Defense Squad rolling. I think Cap I'm gonna Shaw I'm gonna think I'm gonna defend it as well. I, I like I'm charmed by her and uh, for sure. And you know if nothing else, it, it she ended up marrying Steven Spielberg. All right, so <laughs> it was all worth it. 
uh, uh, for sure. But I, I oh, love the campiness so many of Nepo that movie babies. and her performance. So many Nepo babies. I know. It's ridiculous, <laughs> dude. Nepo baby farm over there. But... <laughs> But yeah, I mean the 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 MacGuffin is so fun and great, and the leading up to the big ending, the action sequences iconic. So many of them too. The tank sequence in Last Crusade, the uh, uh, the whole uh, bringing a gun to a, a sword fight in the first movie, oh, which classic. happened actually in a funky way. I think that's the, the anecdote most people know about it. Though that's the anecdote that we almost are like. And here's the part where we tell the anecdote about the sword it's fight, the and then we spies. move on. House of, of, of Indiana, Indiana Jones, Jones for sure, but it's just I, they're so rewatchable. And I recently had watched all of them before this episode. Of course, I went back and, and enjoyed them again when I found out. You know, it's definitely that annoying husband boyfriend move. What you haven't seen any of the Indiana Jones movies? And then you know, so I rewatched them all with Lexi. And had a great time, especially because she's terrified of snakes. So the whole snake part of the first one was hilarious because I just described the entire thing to her with her eyes closed. <laughs> and she was like, you don't have to describe it to her. I was like, no, no, no. I, I, it's kind of important. Yeah. So this room is so insanely filled with snakes, you couldn't believe it. I mean, I've never seen so many snakes in my life. <laughs> They're coming out of the stone mouths. They're coming out everywhere. But anyways, I... Um, I don't know. It's funny. It's like this and other Spielberg classics like Jurassic Park and E.T. It's like, I don't even know what my childhood is without Indiana Jones. Mm -hmm. And uh, because they're so fun to watch. They're so funny and charming, and they br the way they break down to how they they always and 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 King of the Crystal Skull and re it like loses some of this. The way they all open really strong with like an iconic action mm. set piece. We're, we'll talk about it later. I think the opening of Crystal Skull is actually really strong. I think the no, I was I was immediately I was just like you need this big cool moment to happen. Are you kidding me? The, the, the when they have the fight in the warehouse with the the magnetic stuff going on and like the the ah oh, come on. But it even took a while to get to that. Like uh, come on, it needs to be credits. Boom, we are getting chased by a boulder. Like that is how it needs to go down. The Temple of Doom started with Chinese anything goes. Come on. That I love that. That's such a fun <laughs> it's 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 energetic. I love it. It was so fun. This this was the precursor to West Side Story, too, because it was like Spielberg had always wanted to direct a musical, and so he got to add that number to the beginning, and then the whole shootout with the raft over the waterfall, which is insane and impossible. That's just as impossible as the fridge. If you believe the raft, you believe the fridge. All right, all right, we're getting, we'll get into this we're later. Getting, we'll get into it, but still, I just absolutely love the way these movies are paced, the, the, the every single mm -hmm. regular actor that's in, performer that's in them, or big, big part that's in them. I mean, Sean Connery and Harrison Ford in Last Crusade is so fun to watch. Absolutely. And it, what's cool, too, this is definitely the kind of movie, too, that ages really well with, with you. Mm -hmm. Like, when you're younger, I feel like you're maybe more of a Temple of Doom kind of kid, mm -hmm. usually, or... You know, as you get older, you start to get way more into the richness of like the chemistry between the father and son uh, uh, stuff going on in Last Crusade. Whereas, like for me, Last Crusade as a kid, I just wanted to get to that last part mm -hmm. with the with, with the, the challenges yeah, yeah. and the Grail, and you know, and, and it's just like the penitent man will kneel. It's constantly, you know, you find new things to love about it as you get older, and I love that kind of stuff. And I, you know, and now, yeah, I mean, maybe Raiders is 
my favorite at the end. Well, Last Crusade is probably my favorite, I would say. What's your favorite, Jake, before we get started here? Mm, uh, I'm going to say, just as like a fundamental like piece of business, Last Crusade is pretty damn solid. It's just so charming and good, and like everything about it is just... I mean, I mean, I would just sit there with friends who could quote pretty much that whole movie and, yeah. and I would lo- just enjoy it just as much almost, or almost as much as watching it. I mean, I, it's just such a quotable film. Ra- Raiders obviously is, you know, Raiders is as like, a, as a class, as a piece of like filmmaking, the fact that it was done for such a limited budget, that it was this like work of Lucas and uh, Spielberg having something to prove the effects, the optical effects in that movie is Better than Last Crusade. There's a lot of like really chintzy green screen or blue screen work in um in Last Crusade that really don't hold up that well. Whereas some of the things they did in uh Raiders is still a mind-boggling achievement of like what you can do with in-camera effects in a pre-CG world. Uh everything from the ghosts to the snakes to just uh, you know, the practical effects of the boulders and all the temples and stuff. It's incredible. Um, and, you know, just the idea of like these younger kind of scrappier filmmakers making something that iconic is like a better is, you know, watching it with that through that lens. I find Raiders very enthralling. Yeah. And it's definitely that kind of thing where it's like they took the thing that was in their head when they were watching and reading like cheesy pulp serial stuff back when they were a kid and like made that thing Mm -hmm. that they saw in their head back then come fully realized Mm -hmm. in the 80s you know and it was just so perfectly executed and again that's why King of the Crystal Skull and its attempt to kind of do the men from Mars sci-fi 50s thing kind of fell desperately short but we'll get into it soon Uh, we'll talk about it Uh, but first why don't we start with old George Lucas (laughs) As a kid, George Lucas grew up in Modesto, California. He loved comics and sci-fi, TV shows like Flash Gordon, and most importantly for this episode, early 20th century serial films such as Buck Rogers, Zorro's Fighting Legion, Spymaster, and Don Winslow of the Navy, which are all about swashbuckling adventures of different sorts that wind up in wild situations, or adventurers of different sorts that wind up in wild situations, taking on odd jobs for different authority figures. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. One New Republic serial that I ended up watching, and you can find it on YouTube, was called uh, The Secret Service in, like, Blackest Africa. And it involved, get this, <laughs> Nazis and Americans 
uh, going through ancient temples, trying to find an ancient artifact in order to turn around World War II. Um, in this one, it's like, I don't even remember the guy's name, but it's like Rex Danger uh, <laughs> is trying to find a sacred scroll using the mythical dagger of King Solomon. And uh, whoever gets the scroll will be able to win over the uh, Arab nations to join their side in World War II. And this is like back in the 30s. So this is like ripped from the headline shit. Um, but, you know, we're following the Nazis on their attempts to get, like, their plans. There's subterfuge. There's great, like, two-fisted brawls happening left and right. People tumbling over stuff. People swinging over stuff. It really, you know, a, 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 a female journalist who's, like, not like the other girls and can carry her own if she needs to. <laughs> like, very, very clearly, like, this is where Indiana Jones was born. Another one was uh, Zorro and the Fighting Legion, which uh, I only watched, like, 10 minutes of that serial series, but within the first five minutes, Zero comes in, swings off a chandelier, and and what is he carrying? A goddamn bullwhip. <laughs> and he's doing neat bullwhip shit. And like, you gotta, you gotta realize, like, what even is a bullwhip without Indiana Jones? Right. Would you have Castlevania without Indiana Jones? Like, a whip is a terrible weapon. It's like, <laughs> it has a very specific range where, like, if you're too far away, it's useless. If you're too close, it's useless. You can easily hurt yourself. It requires so much space to use. Like, the bullwhip would not be a part of our popular imagination without Indiana Jones. Yeah, I almost said a gun hand, but we'll get into that <laughs> later. Uh, he, was almost ber- he was almost berserk. Yeah, it was, like, full on. Uh, so, back to George Lucas. He later goes to the University of Southern California, where he studied film, among other things, and ends up meeting future collaborator Steven Spielberg, whose whole backstory we've covered in, I think, multiple episodes. E.T., check that one out. That's probably a good one for that. Uh, after school, he makes the sci-fi film THX 1138 as uh, his first full-length feature. This failed to be a hit, a hit. He then creates his own production company, Lucasfilm Limited, and directs a comedy about kids in a small town in the early 60s called American Graffiti, released in 1973, which served as his first huge success. Then came the box office smash, Star Wars. Uh, George Lucas said, I was in my office. The first idea that came up when I was working on American Graffiti, I have a tendency when I'm working on one thing to doodle around and work on other things to avoid what I'm doing. And it came out of that. Before I even had a deal to write American Graffiti, uh, Saturday Matinee Serial, that was the initial thought, was the Saturday Matinee Serial. Lucas ran the idea by different folks but couldn't get anything off the ground. He wasn't quite George Lucas just yet. In 1977, uh, Lucas goes to Maui to hide out during the release of the first Star Wars. He's just like, I just fuck it. Whatever I put it out, I'm getting out of here. He didn't, he actually ends up getting like word of mouth told that it's this massive Incredible. success. He gets like a phone, someone finally reaches him on the phone and is like, dude, everyone's freaking out about your movie right now. Like, get back to the States. But uh, so yeah, he just happens to be in Maui hiding out. And uh, Steven Spielberg just happens to also be vacationing in Maui. Spielberg tells George Lucas he's considering making a James Bond film. Mm-hmm. And George Lucas is the one who turns to him and says, I have something way better than that, and pitches him on the Indiana Jones idea. George Lucas said, I just told him the story, and he got it like that. He had a lot of enthusiasm. Yeah, George Lucas originally had his vision for Indiana Smith, uh, as he was uh, named at the time during this initial planning phase. Yeah, while working on American Graffiti, years before Star Wars came out. Um, 
and Spielberg was also kind of uh, not in the, he wasn't quite Steven Spielberg yet. In fact, he was kind of on the outs because we've talked about this before the film 1941, which was this historical epic comedy farce thing that was a massive flop at the box office was threatening to kind of just kill his career before it even got off the ground. Like the goodwill from Jaws had been completely burnt out. 1941 was that big of a fucking uh, doozy. And so uh, he was desperate to just prove that he can deliver a down the middle action adventure, like a, a thrilling movie under budget on time and was desperate because James Bond was definitely one of like the great holy grails. Like there wasn't really action ah, movies. Intended. Hey, <laughs> like before Spielberg, before the advent of the action movie, it was just James Bond. If you wanted to see like car chases and spies and people exploding and stuff. Um, but the entire like James Bond industry is very closed off. You literally had to like work your way up from nothing to be trusted enough to work on that franchise. So it kind of just became this, this nice little like uh circumstance that Spielberg was desperate to do a action movie. And Lucas had this idea just sitting in his lap. And so, yeah, this is how it kind of start, starts the ball rolling. Spielberg said, Indiana Jones redefined the classic American hero as someone who did not have a backbone made of steel and skin made of Teflon. The idea that our intrepid archaeologist could actually do himself bodily injury made him accessible. He always comes out on top, but he has to swallow his pride without losing his nerve. George Lucas said, it's one of the very, it's one of the few times when the hero gets beat up and he also looked like he got beat up. And he actually continues through the movie looking beat up. He didn't suddenly the next day come out, oh yeah, my broken neck, my broken nose. It's all fixed now. Nothing like a good night's sleep. It was definitely an innovation, a reaction to James Bond, something that was furthered in films like Die Hard. This idea of like, hey, it's like an everyman that like actually gets fucked up, at, you know, and, and actually there's actual stakes here. He's not just like this this uh, 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 100% male fantasy, you know? In fact, mm -hmm. like... I mean, he, he is. is. He, he completely Indiana is. Jones is. Yeah. Because the ultimate male fantasy is to have foibles, but still, through raw grit and charm, get the girl, defeat the Nazis, get the treasure at the it's end. Like the, but, but there has to be a little humility there, because I think a big part of his draw, too, is that he's just this, like, professor that, you know, grades papers on his downtime, right? And, like, he's, he's not this, like, suave, rich man of the world like a James Bond, you know what I mean? That mm -hmm. can just go jet set anywhere and do anything. He's He's got this, like... This this humility about him that that I think is like this new hero of the 80s, essentially, you know, alongside that that other type of deal. I also want to shout out uh, Philip Kaufman, who helped Lucas uh, refine the script in 1975. The two only worked together for two weeks. But Kaufman, who is this uh, Jewish filmmaker, auteur, has, uh, you know, worked on hit films like The Unbearable Lightness of Being, uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, The Right Stuff. You know, he's had his own career, but like he was this 1960s hippie counterculture guy in his teen years. He worked for a kibbutz in Israel for a couple of years. Like he's he was just this like 
awesome dude. And he was the one that really pushed for the biblical angle, kind of drawing inspiration both from his own experience with Jewish mysticism, as well as the uh, very famous kind of Nazi obsession with the occult and having, you know, the the tab- the holy tabernacle uh, be the MacGuffin is like definitely Spielberg's own Jewish background, like made it a perfect match and definitely added to the personal kind of um, personal kind of uh, experience. Uh, I've seen a lot of critics and some essayists point out that like, you know, having this like all American kind of swoop in and just punch Nazis in the face was like a major source of like righteous Jewish vindication mm-hmm. very early on in movie history, mm-hmm. especially like after the great glut of like World War Two based movies when World War Two was happening. So, you know, it's uh it's it's uh it's I just find that like for two weeks, this one guy got a hold of uh, Lucas and was like, let's 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 add some depth to this. Let's make some cool themes going. I just really like that this one guy has a central effect on the trajectory of Indiana Jones. George Lucas said people have tried to do what we did, but they didn't understand the humor of it. They didn't understand the action and they don't understand the MacGuffin. Yes, it's an action movie, but it's important for us that there's a real supernatural mystery going on. Only Indiana Jones films are supernatural mystery movies. They're always going after some supernatural object. It's not a pretend object. It's not something that we made up. It's something that actually exists or people believe exists. Whether it does or not is in dispute, but for every person who says, I don't believe that, there's another person who says, well, I believe it. I heard about it and I saw it and there's stories. And I think as a kid, the whole Ark of the Covenant thing and and the Holy Grail thing, especially in terms of MacGuffins, were so alluring and, and, you know, you're like, holy shit, because I think you even more so buy into it really existing mm-hmm. uh, at that age, and it really works. And they they talk a lot about, you know, especially going into King of the Crystal Skulls, which uh, is arguable whether or not they botched that, uh, but... Um, Still, that you know, it just a lot of the time it took to, for them to just get to making that movie was just landing on the right MacGuffin. Mm. Uh, it seems like George Lucas is Mr. MacGuffin. He's <laughs> like the one that like is very very intense about it, and whereas like other people take it a little less. Like Harrison Ford's like, who gives a shit about the MacGuffin? But uh, still, it's it's really interesting to read about how like how much back and forth uh, happened around what that thing would be that he was seeking out in the film. I also, I mean, also way better than the. Sankara stones. I'm going to say it. There's like, what, what are you doing with these Sankara stones? They literally are like, there's five of them. I only see three there. The other two are somewhere else. Forget about it. We'll yeah. forget about it. Don't worry about the other two. Spielberg and George Lucas pull in Lawrence Kasdan to write the screenplay with him. He hadn't yet worked with Lucas, but Spielberg was hot on him after he wrote the script for Continental Divide, a comedy starring John Belushi and Blair Brown, which we've, I feel like, mentioned before on Mm -hmm. Wizard of the Bruiser or two. Uh, Kasdan remembers Lucas saying this to him upon their initial meeting. I don't know too much about it, but the hero is named after my dog, Indiana. By the way, there's your other, like, (laughs) fact everyone knows. I, I know the hero wears a fedora and a leather jacket and carries a whip. At one point, Spielberg tried to turn him into a badass with a machine gun. I mentioned this a little while ago. Uh, described him as Terminator before Terminator, but George Lucas had to finally be like, bro, what, the, what are you doing? This is ridiculous. Like, we're trying to make this like a real dude. Uh, for the record, uh, actually, uh, hold it. I, I'm sorry. You know, as, as a bald man who uses a hat very often, uh, the uh, Indiana Jones does not technically wear 
wear a fedora. He wears what is known as the poet, which ah. was an original design by Herbert Johnson Hatters and is still available to this day because it was popularized in the movie. But you're not correcting me. You're correcting Lawrence Kasdan's memory of what, what George Lucas said uh, to him in the room. Excuse me, Mr. Kasdan. Mr. Kasdan. <laughs> That's uh, a direct there. quote from the man who wrote Empire Strikes Back. By the way, no Indiana Jones, no Empire Strikes Back. That's the first time they worked together. Mm. This team spent three days plotting the movie together. So this is around when Philip Kaufman joins. Uh, Kazdan uh, then takes the resulting 100-page treatment and hammers it out into a screenplay. Oh, also shout out during the pre-production process, George Lucas, uh, in order to sell the movie, needed some like key visuals to help sell people on the vision. And that's where uh, he hired Jim Steranko around 1979, who is probably best known for those like groovy psychedelic uh nick fury uh comics back then with like the cool swirly graphics and the fucked up like skulls everywhere uh he made some incredible kind of uh pulpy action paintings based on his design you know it's he's not the ralph Macquarie of indiana jones but he definitely has like a role to play during this initial kind of uh uh, uh planning stage Jim Steranko. Nice uh, segue for me, Jake, because now we're going to talk about getting this movie into production, which actually proved to be quite difficult for a couple of reasons. A really interesting... I love when we do these episodes. This is the shit I really, really get into because... I always just look at Spielberg as this massively successful director, George Lucas the same. The fact that they had a hard time getting Ann Jones made is so fascinating to me, and especially because of like what was just currently going on in their careers. So, so essentially, Lucas literally throws all of his personal finances into making Empire Strikes Back. He had nothing left to put towards the Raiders. He financed American Graffiti himself. Everything he made from American Graffiti, which was his first success, he put all that money directly into Empire Strikes Back. But then he's got this other project going on at the same time with the Raiders of the Lost Ark. And he's like, I actually wish I could just make this fucking movie myself, but I have to actually go and beg for the money from a production house this time around. So... He had to make, quote, the toughest deal anybody had ever seen, end quote, to get the film off the ground, which he manages to do with Michael Eisner at Paramount Pictures for $20 million. Just talked a lot about him on our Little Mermaid episode. Eisner was incredibly skeptical because Spielberg was at the helm and his last three pictures, Jaws, Close Encounters, and 1941, they all went way over budget you know, the Jaws and Close Encounters managed to be big successes, but he be, he got a reputation in Hollywood as director that went way over budget, way over schedule, which is a big no-no, obviously, for a lot of production houses and how they want to handle things. And then it, the, the latter film, 1941, finally was his first big flop. And so not only, you know, it's really bad when you go way over budget and over schedule and it fucking flops. Lucas said, I had talked with Steven. He was a friend of mine, and I knew that he didn't want to do that. He was caught in some circumstances beyond his control. And I said, we'll just do this very tightly. We'll do it like television. And these are the rules. And that's how we're going to play. And he agreed. And so I had a complete confidence in him. They were B-movie rules. And Steve worked in television. He knew how to do this. And he just needed to be pulled back and say, hey, we're in the real world here. This is what we're going to do. If you remember, isn't Duel? Yeah. Is that the truck? driver movie yeah, isn't was. that a made for tv so he's 
He started in TV, made for TV, knew how to work in those constraints, so he just had to prove it to them, but they had to take a lot less money. I believe it was $20 million to get the, this movie made. It was a lot less money um, with a big, also wary eye kind of hanging over him the whole time to make sure that he didn't make the same mistakes. Well, the freedom, like, you know, if, the, if they're hearkening back to these B features, these B movies in classic cinema then having the attitude that this is going to be a B-movie actually frees you in a couple of ways. You don't have to take things so seriously. Mm -hmm. You can have more fun with it. You can have more moments of spontaneity. And I think that served the movie well. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So always have to have a story like this in one of these kinds of episodes. Originally, it was going to be Tom Selleck mm. as Indiana Jones. He ended up apparently like the Magnum PI people found out that they were eyeing him for the role and they were like, oh, shit, oh, shit. And they like made him sign on for like a big contract mm -hmm. so that he wouldn't get distracted by Indiana Jones. Uh, and so then Spielberg said, there's always Harrison. Well, Jeff Bridges was also in the mix. Oh, Jeff really? Bridges was also really close to getting it. He, I think more than Tom. Tom Selleck, he may have been able to capture some of the charm. I still don't see anyone, obviously, other than Harrison Ford, but I could maybe see a Jeff Bridges pulling it off because he does have a, that charm, at least, and that everyman kind of vibe. But um, Lucas, very skeptical. Uh, apparently, Harrison Ford was reluctant to sign on Star Wars as a three-picture deal. This was the same thing, but he read the script and hopped aboard, and maybe it didn't hurt that like Star Wars ended up being this like gigantic success that made him a to like a fucking million I was actually uh, in a behind the in, in a very heavily produced behind the scenes documentary feature thing mm -hmm. that I watched on YouTube. Uh, Spielberg claims that Lucas didn't want Ford to take the role because it would distract from Han Solo in the popular imagination ah. that it would it would be it would be bad for the illusion of Han Solo if uh, Harrison Ford was also Indiana Jones and Spielberg had to be like. Bro, he's an actor. Actors play multiple roles. Yeah, he's an actor. And yes, there's similarities between the two parts, but I do find them to be different enough. It's, I mean, if they're just being begrudged, if they're begrudgingly agreeing to like deal with a sharp-willed woman, if they're the same character. Well, one guy's like more of a rapscallion, though. I find uh, uh, Han Solo to be a little bit more of a rapscallion, a little more lower class mm. and and... Indiana's like higher education. And I think he exudes that kind of stuff as well in the role. But regardless, yes, there are definitely similarities to be made there for sure. But yeah, apparently Harrison Ford had a bullwhip guy go to his house for lessons and uh, became proficient with it. He really does whip away the gun in that scene in the jungle. A terrifying stunt for the other actor involved. Uh, Karen Allen's character was based on the strong heroines in Howard Hawks films. Uh, uh, if you want to look at all those, they wanted someone who has had some brass, you know, someone could drink all the other boys under the table, that kind of thing, which did feel 
refreshing and interesting and uh, like a fun take for like the the d- leading lady uh, slash at times damsel in distress. I will say uh, a lot of Marion Ravenwood is a I feel like is. Marsha Lucas, who was, you know, Lucas's uh, wife or girlfriend at the time, uh, who famously did like edit the original Star Wars mm. and is like credited with kind of reeling in a lot of Lucas's like weirder choices, uh, has like, you know, she was a military brat. She was strong willed. She was feisty. Like it makes sense that like th- that core of the character of like Lucas's ideal dame mm-hmm. also kind of uh, emerged in this and uh, if we're going to deal with, like, how these filmmakers reflect female characters, I just I'm planting that seed yeah, for Temple. For sure. Got to. Lucas said it was the film I had the least number of problems with. We didn't hear from the studio. We just had fun. I was shooting second unit, running around like crazy, getting shots. Indy running through the camp. Indy getting the rope and going over to the Well of Souls. The sunset shot. Uh, then, of course, there is that snake scene. Karen Allen, uh, who played Marion Ravenwood, our uh, our leading lady, said they had some real snakes, maybe five hundred to six hundred, that they were going to use for closer shots for long shots they were going to use mechanical snakes Steven could pretty much tell straight away that it wasn't going to happen that way so he put out a call to snake wranglers and suddenly within a period of days 6,000 snakes <laughs> arrived fucking crazy I can imagine uh, Spielberg having flashbacks to Jaws being like mechanical animal Mechanical animal, no, no, God, no, no, can't do it. <laughs> then there's also that awesome fi- fist fight by the airplane with the giant dude that it's like such a good scene. Uh, another really iconic scene that's not the gun scene. Spielberg said the whole flying wing fight was improvised. One idea gave access to the next. It was a real lesson in cinematic improvisation. I was getting really excited as the possibilities were overwhelming. I had to stop myself before the sequence became an eight minute long one that George would cut down to three and a half and it seems like that's a lot of what Spielberg is doing at least at this time in his movie making career he loved a big crazy action sequence that he could like come up with a bunch of stuff and you know and I think this is how we ended up going over budget a lot because he'd be like it would be like a three-day shoot sequence that would turn into like an eight-day shoot you know because Mm -hmm. he would just come up with all these great ideas like in the moment and then they'd get them but that's where you get all these great scenes from then you have the gun versus sword fight, of course, shot near the end of filming. It was in 130 degree weather in Tunisia, just to give some details on it. And it was supposed to be this drawn out epic b- battle. It was taking forever to film and Harrison Ford had gotten ill. So on a break, someone, it's unclear who, uh, apparently no one knows who said it, but someone said, uh, suggested Ford just use his gun instead and the rest is history. Producer Mar- uh, Frank Marshall said, the key there is when you you're given that challenge, solving it gets you to a better place and gets you to a better idea. And I have come across this time and time again doing this show. So constraints like creative freedom is important, but constraints are also almost equally as important. It is so so important to have constraints in play, whether it's budgetary or just because of the situation with the heat and the and here's for whatever it is. The you know if you can rise out of the ashes of those constraints like a phoenix it will always be a better product than just fucking you know having total and utter freedom to make your weird art film denise all right maybe film school's not for you uh i mean it also uh, <laughs> i you know just like uh raiders of the lost ark uh, our own podcast the episodes that your favorite episode 
it was probably happened during that time that me and Holden both had dysentery, uh-huh. just like the cast and crew uh, had in Raiders of the Lost Ark from eating too much local food in Egypt. Well, I that's why I now make myself food sick before every <laughs> recording. I'm literally sitting on a toilet right now that I made that that connects to my desk chair, and I'm shitting profusely right now, Jake. Profusely. Or the oh, you mentioned the big mechan the big uh, Nazi fight. Uh, it should be noted that the big guy in the original three movies, whether it was uh, the big German mechanic, the big chief guard in Temple of Doom, uh-huh. or the big Gestapo guy in uh, in Last Crusade, was all played by professional wrestler Pat Roach. A uh, lot of brown face on him in uh, Temple of Doom, but hey. He puts a he he looks big next to Harrison Ford, and then he always gets sucked up into a, a infernal machine. Uh huh. And uh, God bless it. I love that blood splatter is just phenomenal every single time. I uh, d- d- they used to have a splash zone as well at the movie theater. They'd have a man with a bucket of blood <laughs> standing at the bottom theater as soon as it would happen. He'd just hustle everybody. Film filmmaking was a lot more fun in the late eighties, early nineties, mm-hmm. uh, and movie theater going. So I want to take a little. Depart- we, you know, hey, it's it's the whole trilogy and quadrilogy. Actually, no, it's a quintilogy at this point. <laughs> it's the whole over the whole thing. John Williams, the man, the myth. I I think this may be. Maybe at, maybe Star Wars is up there, but I mean that Indiana Jones theme is just m- actual movie magic for mm-hmm. me. Like I hear that and I'm whisked away to fantasy land. Uh, he, uh, of course, had already worked with both Spielberg and Lucas. He worked with Spielberg on Jaws, George Lucas on uh, Star Wars. Williams said, the Indiana Jones movies were great fun. There was nothing I had to take too seriously musically. They were theatrical and over the top. I particularly remember th- remembered that Indiana Jones theme was something I chiseled away at for a few weeks, changing a little note here, a little note there. It sounds easy, but it was not. Uh, I used to love those old romantic themes in Warner Bros. films. It's still John. Williams. Films like Now Voyager. For the love story between Indiana Jones and Marion, I thought that the music could be like one of those 30s themes, and that would contrast well with the humor and silliness, even if it is inappropriate emotionally. I also remember doing pastiches of brass stabs at all, uh, that always represented the evil Nazis. All of it with tongue slightly in cheek. For the opening of the arc, I wanted to try and evoke a biblical atmosphere uh, to color and express that in a way that only an orchestra and chorus can. And I think that all of those points he touched on for all those different moments are so spot on. I love the romantic, classic romantic vibe of the orchestration during the Indiana Jones and Marion stuff. That that is such a creepy score for the for the Ark of the Covenant stuff. And man, just we, we I couldn't help myself. I had to s- scream sing the the main theme. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it is just a delight, like hearing that and seeing the airplane on the map mm-hmm. move. I mean, it is just takes me somewhere else. It really is beautiful. Spielberg said, the first indie for me is the most perfect of the three. I've never gone back and said I could have done anything better than what I achieved on that film. George Lucas said, one thing I learned, if you hire the best director in the world, making movies is really easy. Supposedly, this is a very apocryphal story, but uh, apparently 
Uh, allegedly, allegedly, uh, while George Lucas was doing special edition stuff with Star Wars, he was egging Spielberg to do the same with his movies. And, uh, you know, he did it a little with E.T. and the walkie talkies and stuff. But it was upon seeing the uh, infamous South Park episode where Lucas and Spielberg uh, hard R word Indiana Jones <laughs> on a pinball machine <laughs> that uh, Spielberg decided to not go back and remaster any of the Indiana Jones movies. Nice. Good. Uh, all right. Are you ready to move into Temple of Doom? Boop, ba, 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 ya, da, da, divorce. As mentioned before, uh, they had a three movie. Yeah, this is a movie. Now, <laughs> we just watch this movie and just realize it's just two sad, lonely men going through breakups. <laughs> That's all that movie is. That's such a funny perspective to have. So, yeah, they had a three movie deal with Paramount. However, the challenge of the sequel was different than, say, a Star Wars. Because Star Wars, they had a preconceived three act story that they broke up into three movies. Spielberg said, I think Temple of Doom was ahead of its time for my own sensibility and exactly right on schedule for George's. George is going through a dark period. He certainly inspired Irvin Kershner to shoot a very dark second act in the first Star Wars trilogy, and he wanted the second Indiana Jones to be very, very dark, and I wasn't there. Like, mentally, emotionally. Lucas was going through a divorce at the time. As we alluded to, George uh, Lucas and Steven Spielberg wrote the script with Willard Hoyk, Yuck. <laughs> Will, Willard Hoyk and Gloria Katz, they wrote with Lucas on uh, American Graffiti. As Spielberg tells it, George Lucas ha- said it had to be a trilogy and that he had an idea for three stories. However, that was BS. So they had to scramble to come up with the next two. He didn't have anything. It was all just like, yeah, yeah, I got it. I'll figure it out. Spielberg said the danger in making a sequel is that you can never satisfy everyone. If you give people the same movie with different scenes, they say, why weren't you more original? But if you give them the same character in another fantastic adventure, but with a different tone, you risk disappointing the other half of the audience who just wanted a carbon copy of the first film with a different girl and a different bad guy. So you win and you lose both ways. Uh, Arguable. I mean, I definitely think Temple of Doom is the clear weaker of the trilogy. But at the same time, I have a fondness for it because of growing up with it. I think it is the funnest for kids to watch and uh you know it has some really high high points i think i never watched it in like from beginning to end until this week of oh, research really? and i did not think it was that bad obviously through I pop culture brains. through pop culture osmosis there was a lot of things that i was supposed to hate but i think uh ki hui kwan was short round is great yeah he's a great short round is amazing i think the pushback i'm gonna say it i'm gonna say it holden i think there was a little bit of like latent racism yes. with a lot of like kids that were like wait no my point of view character has to be white i'm not an asian kid i can't associate with this kid oh i thought you were gonna talk about the also the poor representation of indian people oh god but yeah yeah so i mean we'll get to that but <laughs> the entire idea of the thuggy clan the thuggy cult yeah. the thuggy this and that is a lot of people have been trying to go back and be like what is is this actually based on anything And a lot of popular discourse has actually said that the idea of these roving bands of like secret evil cultists that wander around India, kidnapping people and killing people and worshiping Kali was a lot of like British colonial kind of propaganda to kind of justify them, quote unquote, cleaning up their colonial holdings Mm. and being brutal to local people. Um, But 
it's just uh it's just the there's so much good there. I honestly think uh the opening even with the anything goes sequence, I love uh, the, the opening in the, at the Obi-Wan club <laughs> is great. Um just that one like that one his uh what's I forgot the character's name. It's like Wuhan or Han Wu uh-huh. who's like Indiana Jones's uh like assistant who dies and he's like I followed you for many adventures. But it is I who will reach the great mystery first. <laughs> like, just brilliant. Mm-hmm. The fact yeah, that, great. like, the the plot begins when Indiana Jones and, and crew just literally land on a village. Yes. And it's like, you got to go get this rock. And Indiana Jones is like, okay. Right. <laughs> I love it. It kind of has a child logic to it, mm-hmm. right? I mean, even the raft off of the waterfall. There's That's why it's so funny that this was the dark one where George Lucas is going through a divorce. I'm oh, like, there is some cartoon escapade shenanigans like people get bonked on the head with like three stooges sound effects yes you know that thing where it's like uh in the minecart chaser harrison ford's like water water and then the waters are like water yes it's like there's so many fucking wackety schmackety shit apparently by the way the minecart chase was supposed to happen in raiders they just pushed a lot there were a lot of ideas apparently that they just dropped from raiders and they just pushed it over into temple of doom uh yeah it's so silly to me and so so, you know, the whole dinner scene, I already quoted it, but I'll quote it again. Monkey brains. Like, <laughs> I say monkey brains like that just all the time. Mm-hmm. It's literally all the time I say monkey brains like that. I'm so tickled by that moment in the movie. It's all so fun and silly. And yet, weirdly at the same time, the dark uh, film of the trilogy. But anyways, Kate Capshaw, who plays Willie Scott, the the leading lady in this one, said, I think we were constantly stretching and reaching to be as brilliant as the first one, and we just didn't have the story. We had children at risk. Where's the fun in that? There were also a hundred more screams than we needed. I love that she references how much she screams in that movie. She screams so much in that movie. Uh, George Lucas, who wrote an initial treatment that took place in a haunted castle in Scotland, I believe... Now, I think that they this was the seed for the false start for last crusade mm-hmm. if I'm unless I'm I got my information wrong. But apparently he created this treatment Haunted Castle Scotland. Spielberg was like, it's way too similar to this other movie I'm working on called Poltergeist. Uh, directed by a maniac that I ended up having to step in on. I think we definitely should do a Poltergeist episode this October. But anyways, so it was turned into this demonic temple in India. Lawrence Kasdan was asked to write it with the guys initially, but said, I just thought it was horrible. It's so mean. There's nothing pleasant about it. I think Temple of Doom represents a chaotic period in both their lives, referring to George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. And the movie is very ugly and mean-spirited, which again, I guess, but it's just also so goofy and, and ridiculous i mean the character of willie who is like constantly a foil to indiana jones uh i will say there are some parallels with uh spielberg's uh then wife but he had been on again off again with her amy irving Mm. who was the daughter of jules irving who was like this you know this actress who had been like a part of show business since she was actually a child and had a history of being an old-timey lounge singer it's actually amy irving irving's voice singing as Jessica Rabbit in uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Oh, wow. So, like, the idea of this, like, 
like woman who is impossible to deal with i feel like is very influenced by amy irving and the fact that uh spielberg then ended up marrying kate capshaw yes. who played this cartoon version of a woman i don't know i don't know i'm just i'm just i'm just i'm not even putting strings on the cork board i'm just like pointing at two points on the cork board and being like hmm, interesting <laughs> also god damn the sexual fucking uh, volcano in that one scene where they're both like waiting for each other to make the first move on who's yeah, going to start that's the such a fun. Fest. That's such a fun. Holy scene. shit! I really enjoyed that part. I, 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 like I said, I think I think I could probably re- recite that movie to you more easily than the other two. I watched it so much as a kid and and really enjoyed that that stuff. So but short round is great. Yeah. The uh the big torture sequence is amazing. Yes. And uh, bugs. Who doesn't love bugs? We'll talk more about bugs in just a second. All that stuff though. It's like ew bugs. Like that was such fun for a child for sure. The whole thing with like the hypnosis juice was weird because uh-huh. they just kind of it just solves itself very quickly. Mm -hmm. And this is part of the Indiana Jones iceberg. You can find this in the grainiest ass video footage you've ever seen in your life on YouTube. But in the big temple set piece, when Indiana Jones is like shirtless and getting whipped, uh, Spielberg pulled the weirdest prank of all time. (laughs) While Harrison Ford was tied up, uh, he brought in, Barbara Streisand in a full turban getup, and she started whipping him since, like, actually hitting him and saying, like, this is for, and he just named all of his flop movies and was like, this is bad. This sucked. Like, shame on you. Then Carrie Fisher shows up Uh. and hugs him from behind and quotes, like, one of the lines from Star Wars about, like, right before they kissed. And Harrison Ford looks visibly confused by what's happening because he can't see anybody. And then Irving Kirshner shows up and starts giving notes to Spielberg about how he's running a shoddy production. (laughs) And all of this is, again, I I must stress, the grainiest video footage you've ever seen, but it survived somehow. That's funny. Uh, They were also, they were supposed to film in India, but the government were a bit upset with the script. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they uh, they wanted changes. They wanted final. We don't cut. need chilled monkey brains. We need hot monkey brains. This is a, this is awful. This forced them to move production over to Sri Lanka instead. Uh, Kate Capshaw was just off the bus <laughs> in Hollywood. This was Jonathan K. Kwan's first time on a movie set as well. Okay, Kwan said, my brother went to the open call for short rounds, so I tagged along. And the casting director asked me to read for him. I couldn't even pronounce the words. The next day, we got a call from Steven's office. He also said... It was a very, very happy time. We all stayed in the same hotel in Sri Lanka, and we'd go back to Harrison's hotel room and hang out. He even taught me to swim. On the set, Harrison played jokes on Steven all the time. There's one shot where the mine car pops up in a frame. Right before we did, Harrison got ice cream cones and gave some to me and Kate. When Steve (laughs) said, action, we all popped up with ice cream smeared all over our faces. Steven just said, that's great. Print that one. (laughs) But of course, it's all fun and games until bugs are involved. Producer Frank Marshall's said the bugs were much harder to work with than the snakes. You can arrange a pile of snakes. That's impossible with bugs. People were also much more scared of the insects. Every once in a while, you'd hear this shriek when the bugs found their way into the tap dance rehearsal stage. A bad place for any bug to be. (laughs) That was a funny anecdote. The uh, heart ripping out scene is what earned them a PG-13 rating. I cannot believe Raiders got a PG rating, by the way. We had to look it up while we were watching it. It was, uh, I thought it was uh, Red Dawn that... 
officially got the PG-13 rating. I think it was during the mm. debates over Temple of Doom, Spielberg was like, oh, okay. Listen, listen, you guys gotta do something in between R and PG. Yeah, yeah, this is like ridiculous. I agree. I agree with that for this one, especially. The ratings board is also uh, the reason why during the big Nazi uh, face explodey sucky melty scene, there's like a wall of fire during uh-huh. the guy who exploded is because that effect was deemed way too gory. Yeah. I think the melting scene was way too gory, but whatever that was due to uh, the ratings board. So like it was, I believe it was technically red Dawn. That was the first official PG 13. So Spielberg, you know, the, the- it's interesting. This movie comes out. I did not know this. I thought it was just a big success. I just thought they were all very popular. It comes out. It actually is poorly reviewed by critics. They take aim at the dark tone. They take aim. Of course, we got to talk about the heroine. Um, and of course, Indian audiences not loving the representation there. And, you know, that definitely does not hold up in a lot of ways. I think that uh, they were really just chasing a lot of those serials from back in the day had mm-hmm. these like Indian cult kind of thing storylines oh there was a hit movie from the 30s yes, called gunga din, din mm-hmm. that involved uh literally you know a good indian guy helping the british uh fight against good quote unquote uh against a thuggy cult sect and had a lot of inspiration for that. Spielberg said, the second film I could have done a lot better if there had been a different story. It was a good learning exercise for me to really throw myself into a black hole. I I came out of the darkness of Temple of Doom and I entered the light of the woman I was eventually going to marry and raise a family with. Referring, of course, to his marriage with Kate Capshaw who uh, with whom they've raised seven children together. Some adopted, some their biological kids. But regardless, Kate Capshaw had a cute quote that I didn't put in here because it was superfluous but talking about just how like anytime that movie's on the two of them will stop and just start reminiscing about Aww. how it was like oh remember that shoot day you were really flirty with me that day remember that one oh we were like at odds that day and it's just really cute it's really the story of them falling in love is is uh for them you know is is watching that movie don't worry about amy irving by the way she got a hundred million dollars in the divorce <laughs> uh after a judge ruled that the prenup they both signed on a cocktail napkin didn't count and uh, also you know i think one one other thing I want to mention before we move on with Temple of Doom that made it so weird, kind of a standout weird one compared to the other two is just it mostly takes place in like, it's like three locations. It's mm. the nightclub, the village, and then for the most part, the whole movie takes place inside of that uh, you know, palace. Yeah. yeah, and so I think that was also weird. Like, where's the jet setting? Where's this like really exotic, or at least where's the the like chase seat? There was, you know, there's a lot more mobility. There's always some kind of motorcycle chase or a car thing mm. or something we just didn't have very much of that at all uh, with the minecart I guess but still the minecart does a lot of heavy lifting yes. that was an, you know the use of miniatures the use of yeah. uh, composite effects they did a lot of like you know but it, when I think about Temple of Doom I don't like that's not the first sequence that pops in my head at all you know mm. uh, for sure alright you watch one snake belly erupt with thousands of eels and all of a sudden you can't talk <laughs> um, about anything else you really can't I mean I that food part is just so ingrained in my brain, man. Just so completely. There was actually a line in the original screenplay where Indiana Jones like leans over to, you know, the uh, English general guy and is like, 
hey, I thought Hindus don't eat meat. Something fishy's going on here, uh, which I feel like would have done a lot of heavy lifting to be like, this is not how Indian people eat. Oh, I'm so glad you bring this up, actually, because another thing before we move on, the whole scene was misread. Apparently, the whole idea was that Americans have such a ridiculous idea of what Indian people eat that it was a prank being played on Indiana Jones and, mm. and crew and crew by the palace people because they were like purposely making it as gross as possible for them to like play a joke on them and to make a comment about the way American people view. And it was totally just seen like mm. completely just seen as Indian people, right? They're weird, right? <laughs> All right, Last Crusade. For the third film, they first turned to the initial story they had in mind for Temple with the Scottish castle, as well as the Monkey King from Chinese mythology. Steven Spielberg said, it was going to be Indiana Jones and ghosts. We even had a story about Indiana Jones in Tibet. When then George came up with the idea that Indiana Jones goes after the Holy Grail, I immediately said, does that mean that jugular biting white rabbits are going to come flying out of caves? <laughs> Love it, Steven. As far as I'm concerned, the Holy Grail remains defined by the pythons. And George said, this is going to be serious. Or he said, this is going to be serious. Mm -hmm. The inclusion of Indiana's father in the film was a way to instill more character development into the trilogy, which was a brilliant choice. Spielberg said, the dad thing was my idea. The Grail doesn't offer a lot of special effects and doesn't promise a huge physical climax. I just thought that the Grail uh, that everybody seeks could be a metaphor for a son seeking reconciliation with a father and a father seeking reconciliation with the son. And since the whole thing was inspired partly by James Bond, Sean Connery was an obvious choice for Spielberg and crew. Spielberg said, it was an emotional story, but I didn't want to get sentimental. Their disconnection from each other was the basis for a lot of comedy, and it gave Tom Stoppard, who was uncredited, a lot to write. Tom is pretty much responsible for every line of dialogue. The story by credit goes to Menno, uh, Menno Mahes and uh, George Lucas Mahes, uh, who's also known for his adaptation of The Color Purple. Jeffrey Bohm won the Arbitration War and got the screenplay credit. He's known for The Lost Boys, Lethal Weapon 2 and 3, and Inner Space. Tom Stoppard is a famous playwright who wrote stuff like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are mm. Dead, which is also really good, like, back-and-forth witty dialogue, so that makes a lot of sense. But I can't believe he's totally uncredited. This is how crazy Arbitration is. I don't know how much we've talked about arbitration in um in in our episodes. It's come up before. It's come up recently actually. Well, it's a big one, you know. I one of my favorite uh script writing books is by the Reno 911 guys. It's called How to Make Movies for Fun and Profit with Fun Crossed Out. <laughs> and they have a whole chapter on arbitration. And you know, having like being a screenplay writer, uh one of the most important things you need is a really good lawyer because when all you know, all these different people pass through a screenplay, it's like almost never just one person work and uh, you do have to have this crazy like battle of lawyers to figure out who will get that you know story by credit and who will get that screenplay credit and um, and that person gets a shitload of money and the other people get way 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 less and Tom Stoppard should have probably gotten way way more because according to Spielberg and team like he wrote like all of that dialogue <laughs> It literally, Tom is pretty much responsible for every line of dialogue in the screenplay. <laughs> That's insane. To not even get credited is so wild to me. But anyways. Indiana, you have to let go. It's so good. All their all their back and forth stuff is so good. She talks in her sleep. <laughs> 
We named the dog Indiana. <laughs> that was, which, of course, the reference. But uh, by the way, She Talks Her Sleep was actually an uh, ad lib mm. and cracked everybody up and they had to like retake it because they laughed through it. Uh, love this quote from Spielberg. I believe it is based on the chemistry in the film. Sean was in a great mood most of the movie because he was able to be funny. He was able to use his comedic skills, and Harrison was a it was in a fantastic mood because he was able to be the foil for the father. It was the most fun we had between actors in all of these movies. I think that's just great. It really shows. It really, really speaks towards. It comes across the screen so wonderfully and so fully and so beautifully that I just have to throw my uh, bid down for Last Crusade being the best of the trilogy. Ra- Raiders kind of a very Star Warsy thing with Empire and the New Hope. Mm-hmm. Raiders is like perfect, but Last Crusade is the best, mm. um, in my opinion. The leading lady was played by Allison Duty. <laughs> Stop laughing in your car. Stop laughing in your filthy car and throw those bags of Jack in the Box out of the car when you stop, you dirty, dirty boy. Ooh, I'm going to spank you boy in his car on the way to work. There's going to be one guy who's like, oh, shit. Oh, no, wait, it's just Taco Bell. Okay, he wasn't talking about me. And is there nut on your pants? <laughs> Come on. The leading lady, played by Allison uh, Duty, uh, the Nazi uh, Dr. Elsa Schneider, was purposely an effort to avoid the damsel in distress vibes in Temple. So she's like a Nazi <laughs> and a badass and a uh, smoke show at that. I would say the Nazi is the most in distress because their entire worldview is so flawed. You know? <laughs> there you I, go. I'm, I'm, Thanks, I Jake. can fix her. I can <laughs> fix her. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The ultimate I can fix her girl. That's so funny. <laughs> The tank sequence really showcased Spielberg's action directing, as well as Harrison Ford and Sean Connery's acting. It was supposed to be a much shorter sequence. This is one of the ones that he really expanded on, but it was also, because he expanded on it so much, it becomes this like major centerpiece of the film that it was not mm-hmm. in uh, its original incarnation in the script. They added the motorcycle chase oh, yeah. after watching a rough cut of the film and feeling the last act needed more action, which I could see, but I like how thoughtful like the ending is and how how kind of chilled paced it is because I was enamored by the tests. I thought they were so cool, oh, the Penitent Man yeah, and yeah. the Invisible Bridge. I thought that was fucking badass. I didn't need like a chase per se, you know? It's it's that movie that made me realize that uh, the vo- name of God that like mm. uh, in Hebrew is like, uh, you're not even supposed to say it out loud, mm. but like... It, it's Jehovah, and like it's the same word. I just never put that together. Ah. Whatever, just some just some neat biblical learning. There you go. While watching Indiana Jones, the company that supplied the snakes and bugs from the previous movies also got Spielberg them rats. One thousand disease-free gray rats were ordered <laughs> and then bred over five months to get them to five thousand rats. Guaranteed disease-free, yes. or your rats are on the house. <laughs> and the fact that they were like, "All right, now rats, I need y'all to start fucking." <laughs> so then they they uh, uh, multiplied by five and got to five thousand rats for the sequence. Mechanical ones, though, don't worry. Mechanical ones were used for the fire part. So no real rats were harmed. Mm. The film was released in May of 1989, breaking a box office record for opening weekend sales. This was surpassed literally just later that year by Ghostbusters 2 and Batman 1989 fucking ruled. Mm. Uh, Anything else you want to say about Last Crusade before we move into the very controversial uh, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull? Just that that amazing final shot of all of them riding off into the sunset was also filmed after the fact because in the edit... 
Spielberg was like, God damn it, it just needs like a little bit of an extra like send off. And also it was supposed to be Spielberg uh, metaphorically riding off into the sunset of his like 80s kind of uh, 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 mainstream blockbustery kind of uh, uh, run. You know, it was, you know, it was after you know, he wanted to stick to like the Munich and the, the Schindler's lists of uh, of proper uh, capital M movies after this. So he really wanted the right off into the sunset shot. They ended up getting everybody to Texas mm. to get that nice little into the horizon thing. And also mentioning Schindler's list and that sort of stuff. It's exactly why we don't get Nazis in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Let's get into it. With the trilogy complete, Harrison Ford spoke of the franchise being finished. Spielberg turned it towards uh, TV. We talked about the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles on ABC, which got two seasons and 28 episodes. It was seen as a way to educate the youth on historical figures. I also remember having like young indie like books from like the Scholastic Fair. It was definitely it was such a big childhood franchise as much as like it's a dad franchise as well. So Ford does a cameo in one of these episodes and George Lucas gets the idea for a story revolving around an older Indiana set in the 50s. It would be based on 1950s sci-fi B movies and feature aliens. And it was his thought that they could put Indy in uh, different genre films and expand on the formula. Initially, Ford and Spielberg resisted the idea. But after reuniting at the American Film Institute's tribute to Harrison Ford, they all decided they liked to get the band back together for one more gig. The Crystal Skull artifact was uh, intriguing to Spielberg. It was a MacGuffin written for a young Indiana episode that didn't get filmed due to the show's cancellation. And Lucas sells Spielberg on the alien thing by pitching them not, uh, 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 they're not extraterrestrials. No, no, no. They're interdimensional. For some weird reason, that little detail is what makes Spielberg go, oh, okay. Wow. Yeah, he's string theory. It's different, even though if you watch the movie, it is for all intents they're just aliens they got the completely gray, basically grays and again it's like yes people believe in aliens but somehow it just does not have the same weight as like ark of the covenant holy grail you know these sorts of things and and also spielberg talked about how like they had a hard time with the mcguffin the mcguffin not just being aliens but the crystal skulls and uh, with that, I would say he was like, yeah, we finally found the Crystal Skulls because people do believe in that. And it's like a whole thing. And I, besides Crystal Skull vodka, I wasn't really aware of the Crystal Skull thing. Like I was aware of like, again, the Ark of the Covenant, Holy Grail, that kind of thing. So I don't I, you know, it wasn't really like in my brain, at least going into also, it. Also, for the record, all the Crystal Skulls are bullshit. They are not like, despite... What, uh, what, uh, oh God, which, which Ghostbuster was obsessed with, uh, Dan Aykroyd with the Crystal Skull vodka. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Despite what Dan Aykroyd will tell you, all of the Crystal Skulls, including ones that made it to big museums like, uh, like the Smithsonian, all show signs of being hand polished and carved using modern materials and modern methods. There was a boom in Mesoamerican artifact trading. And people just whip these things together in order to try and make a quick buck. They are fakes. The crystal skulls are fake. I must repeat, they are fake. You can find, like, the one they had in the Smithsonian, they were like, oh, we found traces of, like, sandpaper on this one. <laughs> like, it's not a thing. So, 
The script passed through various hands, including M. Night Shyamalan at one point, but Jurassic Park writer David Cope is the one credited for the screenplay. Here we attempt to explain just what the hell happened in this film. So one issue, of course, is that they turned away from the Nazis uh, because this was this post. It was interesting you said earlier in the episode, like, wow, this is one of the first times you got to, like, punch a Nazi in a face in this way, especially, like, or, or, like updated in the 80s well he turned away from this he didn't want to like satirize them anymore he he was so disturbed i think after making schindler's list he was like i don't even want to treat them like in a pulp way you know uh and so uh he reevaluated uh his portrayal both of violence in films as well as um as well as the portrayal of nazis and i think that led to some weaker action sequences for mm-hmm. sure a little less teeth going on uh and um he uh, also, you know, we have the Cold War instead and Soviets. And this was a bit more of an ambiguous, all, everything about the Cold War is more ambiguous, a little bit, just quite a lot weaker because there's not like actual like murder, like, you know, or, or like warring happening. Um, and you have, a, I would say, arguably a weaker villain uh, with Kate Blanchett's portrayal as really campy in a way that didn't quite work. What do you think about uh, her villain? Uh, oh, you're talking about Irina Spalko. Uh, I think she did a fine job. I think if you go back to, you know, uh, Mola Ram in Temple of Doom, you go back to yeah, even yeah, the original uh-huh. Nazis in Raiders of the Lost Ark. But he was they scary. Did. That villain in Temple of Doom was scary to me, at least as a kid. You know, uh, I think Kate Blanchett, they kind of under the character just gets shown up one too many times by the time we get to the final confrontation. And weirdly enough, they pull the same weird trick. That uh, they did in Raiders of the Lost Ark, where like the villain gets the MacGuffin and gets to unlock the thing they were searching for and just dies immediately, thus making the proceedings. If you want to be like a weird pedant about it, Indiana Jones didn't need to be involved at all. Like if nothing, if he didn't intervene, the bad guys would just unlock the MacGuffin and immediately die. No, nothing lost. <laughs> like, yeah, but I like the bowl cut. I like the bangs. I like the sword fights. Uh-huh. I think she uh, is. I a, like the look. Yeah, it's a good look. It's a fine character. Uh, I'm more like weirded out that like they tr- the, throughout the movie. They're like, man, this red scare thing's pretty over the top, huh? Yeah, it's like the, you know, the everybody's freaking out over communists. It's a sh- damn shame, really. You know, probably speaking the, you know, the blacklist filmmakers, the, you know, all the, you know, the, the McCarthy hearings rightfully like criticizing the era, but then they just go ahead and they're like, Oh no, it's the Soviets. We're dumb super villains. (laughs) So it's like, well, what's the point then? Yeah. Was, are you saying McCarthy was right? (laughs) Like they're just out there looking for psychic super weapons. And, uh, you also have uh, a bit of an eye bashing of CGI that is a bit over the top. Okay. All right. All right. I'm going to say this. I'm going to say this. I'm going to say this. The two things everybody points to when they talk about this movie, number one, shot, LaBeouf uh, swinging with the monkeys. Yes. Very silly, but Tarzan. Tarzan was a thing. They wanted to acknowledge. Tarzan was big in the 50s and the 40s. They wanted a Tarzan moment, and that was the way they were going to get it. Uh, If you watch a modern Marvel movie, there's plenty of cringy bad CG. Sure. And like, uh, uh, Crystal Skull doesn't stand out very much in that respect. But in connection, but but like that, all in superhero stuff, it's always lived in that CG. It was jarring to have it in this movie just because of how practical and like visceral feel, see 
seeming like everything in the other movies was, you know? I will say the giant ant sequence was fucking rad. The uh, the effects were done well. It was a unique threat. The deaths from the ants were kind of gory in their own kind of way. Mm. I liked those effects. I liked that sequence. Like the, the whole jungle chase with the duck boats and all of that, if it wasn't for... The goddamn uh, monkeys, I feel like we'd be saying it took, even with Shia LaBeouf getting hit in the nuts by trees <laughs> while like doing a split, doing a sword fight, uh, you know, swashbuckling. They're still referencing mm-hmm. older, sure. sillier movies in a way that, fi- and then the thing that named the trope, nuking the fridge. Yes, let's talk about it. Because, all right, can I just say- In the theater, people- Yes. Okay. People so were horrified. I didn't know this was going to happen. I'd heard the movie was just a total shit show or a bust or whatever. And I remember we went to our weird bootleg DVD guy when I was living with Kissel for a night of movie watching. We would do this sometimes. You get like a triple feature going. Mm-hmm. And we got three movies. We got, uh, uh, I believe, was it Rambo 4 or Rambo 6? It was the new one at the time. Mm-hmm. I can't, I think it was Rambo 6, mm-hmm. maybe. We got Iron Man and Indiana Jones uh, and watched it in the opposite order, I believe. I think Indiana Jones is the first one, then Iron Man, which like knocked our socks off, then Rambo, which fucking blew us away. It was so good. <laughs> and and I just remember when the nuke the fridge happened, we did not see it coming. And even not knowing that it was this big cultural phenomenon that everyone was ridiculing, we screamed with laughter. We were just dying. Uh, it was so ridiculous. And of course, Indiana Jones, he gets into a fridge because it says it has like lead uh yeah. protective right and there's and a fucking nuclear bomb goes off like not far from him and he survives the blast it, and it coined nuke the fridge he goes flying several stories into the air we see the fridge land violently and then he just like emerges like ha wah. i will say having in the this Sequence up until that point where Indiana Jones is running from the Russians after, I will argue, that initial uh, action sequence is amazing. Ray Winstone yelling, you don't know him. You <laughs> don't know him. Like, it's it's great. Um, and he he lands and, you know, he, he runs off into this suburban, idyllic American neighborhood and he just needs help. The phone's dead. Nothing's working. He's like trying to figure out what to do. It's fun seeing Indiana Jones. You know, this gritty pulp hero that you're more used to seeing in like decrepit ancient temples, like Mm. in this Americana setting, he looks out of place. He looks confused. It's a metaphor for how Indiana Jones is a man out of time. He is entering the space age, the atomic age, and he doesn't quite fit. And it's and he sees the mannequins. He's like and he slowly is realizing what's happening and all is lost and he enters the fridge. You have to understand this is Spielberg and Lucas. These are boomer ass boomers. The big metal fridge was like a death trap. Like probably they lost friends to that thing. That was like a common danger was don't get locked in a fridge. Cause like you'll suffocate and die. And the, uh, just having for having Indiana Jones reach into the fridge, a source of boomer anxiety as his like safe haven, I feel like visually, symbolically speaks volumes for the tone and what they were like trying to say about the franchise in that moment. And the fact that we've talked about it already, Temple of Doom, full of shenanigans, Last Crusade, tons of shenanigans. Like Indiana Jones has been a slapstick, goofy ass time from the get go. Totally. We've seen absurd shit in, in the previous films. So like it doesn't break the, you know, I feel like it's because so much time had passed from 
uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark and Temple of Doom, and a bunch of grown-up millennials came to watch the movie remembering the Indiana Jones franchise as this like crazy violent and like more adult movie than, you know, it was a movie that they weren't supposed to watch as small children. And they felt like they were getting away with something. I feel like that disconnect created a massive backlash. And I feel like the movie, um, you know, not, not Oscar winning by any means, but the action sequences have a nice rhythm to it. The motorcycle chase thing has a nice rhythm to it. The uh, if anything, when they find the mummies in the graveyard, that's like real good classic, like uncovering artifacts, solving the mystery kind of thing that like you want from a classic Indiana Jones movie. And yes, by the end, when they're in the big fucking uh, uh, I forget the word for the for a ziggurat, when they're in the ziggurat, mm. things do fly off the rails because there's aliens and dimensional portals and everything's going nuts. Yeah, I mean. I think it falls apart at the end. Also, I just think it does technically lack that solid structure that they nailed down in those previous three movies that they just did not really, for some whatever reason, nail down in this one. I'm not really sure why, because it's pretty paint by numbers. I'm talking just a big action sequence right up top and then setting up for the adventure and then going on, you know, I mean, it's just, it's very... I'm saying it, I'm saying it did it. I'm saying it is surprisingly confident. I, I, I don't think it quite, it, I, I, I think I agree with some of your points. I don't, I don't agree with that. I don't think the movie begins very well um, as well. And it just, it suffers from pacing issues and it's a, a little too long. Mm-hmm. It, an Indiana Jones movie is two hours. That's it. That's all it should be. Every single one is like, anyways, but we go on for, for forever. Maybe we'll do a point counterpoint bonus episode for Patreon. Um, uh, but also I love these quotes. Spielberg, blame me. Don't blame George referring to the, the nuke the fridge sequence. That was my silly idea. I'm proud of that. I'm glad I was able to bring that into popular culture. However, George Lucas has later said that Spielberg was just trying to protect him. It was Lucas that gave Spielberg a dossier of research to convince him to do the scene. And he found that it, it, it he had a 50, 50 shot to, to survive the nuclear blast in such a way, which I do think is very funny that he like went and did the science. He punched the numbers on, the nuclear blast in the fridge. There is also a fan theory that helps soften the ridiculousness of the scene. This is every fan theory. Is like, know, it was right? all a dream. It was all his dying well, mind. Well, he's saying no, that he previously drank from the Holy Grail. Mm. So he had some aspects of like supernatural fortitude from doing that. And that's what actually allowed him. No. Ha! No, I deny this. <laughs> I deny this fully. Uh, okay, then let's talk about the fan theory that all of Indiana Jones is Han Solo's uh, weird coma dream. I love that. When he's in the carbonite. I think that's great. Yeah, sure. Perfect. Why not? Anything goes, but in Chinese. Spielberg has also since said he's glad it was a movie that appealed to families, but also understands uh, folks' issues with the MacGuffin. He too always kind of had a problem with the MacGuffin. So, and, and again, that was a lot of Lucas being like, no, it'll work, Stephen. Trust me, okay? I know. I went into a, a, a chamber last night and listened to to, to to gong sounds and figured it out. <laughs> All right, anyways, getting the final one made, The Dial of Destiny. Let's talk about it as we wrap things up. Crystal Skull, released in 2008. Uh, and in 2010, Harrison Ford mentions that he, George Lucas, and Spielberg had been talking shop about a new idea. Then in 2012, George Lucas sells Lucasfilm to Disney for a whopping $4.5 billion. Four point oh five billion dollars. Billion. Billion. Buh, 
billion. This caused complications due to Paramount's distribution rights. In 2015, the rumor mill had Chris Pratt at the center of an Indiana Jones rebirth, but also they confirmed that year that they didn't even have a script for a fifth indie film. Finally, it is confirmed in 2016 that Steven Spielberg and Harrison Ford are returning for a fifth uh, Indiana Jones film and that they had their MacGuffin. The movie initially gets a release date for 2020 and no shit that changes, of course. In 2018, it gets moved to 2021, moved again later. 2020, thank God they did a really smart thing. They got Logan director James Mangold signed on to direct. The movie involves an old retired indie and an aged down one as well. Ex-Nazis, Soviets, and the heroine is played by, oh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge. She's the best. What a smart heroine casting. I love her uh, from Fleabag. People are already flipping out. It's the, the fucking Go Woke, Go Broke's brigade are like Why? teeth gnashed. Because <laughs> she had one line where she smarmily in the trailer where she's like, like, uh, she stole it from me. And it's like, or like, I stole it from him and she stole it from me. She's like, it's called capitalism. Get used to it. And just like, what's wrong with that? I, I don't know, but I feel like people are, I mean, I've seen, I've, I've looked up Indiana Jones on YouTube. I've so seen stupid. the fucking neck beards. And I say this as a neck beard, the bad neck beards yeah. are really just primed to attack this movie and it's getting mid reviews. Although I've always loved a nice, uh, Antikythera mechanism story. I still think it's going to be stronger than crystal skulls. I, it look, the trailers look great. Mm. Harrison Ford has said this is his last time playing indie and that he is in his 80 as he is in his eighties. And that is unlikely that the character will appear again, played by someone else, which I hope so. It should really stay his. We don't need more Indiana Jones after this. I'm sure they're going to make us do that more of that, but Come on, Mutt didn't work. You think some other fucking dog named me? I think Mutt, by the way, was named after like Spielberg's dog, which is like, yeah, yeah it's just the name of a dog, Mutt. Anyways, <laughs> all right. We got to get out of here. Um, very excited for the new movie. I'm so excited we did this episode. I, it's a long time coming for me as a major fan of the franchise. I just am so in love with it. Can't wait to watch it with my kid. Uh, and uh, yeah, I don't know. Just, uh, just uh, it's that's... Hollywood blockbuster movie making magic right there in a in a bottle in the Indiana Jones franchise it is everything I think a kid and adult wants in like a fun Saturday afternoon movie or what what have you. Um all right. That's our episode of Indiana Jones. Anything else you want to say about that before we do the plugs? Uh just trying to think of some stuff. Uh I there's so many, you know, film nerds have been pouring over this movie for decades. They love every single second of it. Um I guess, uh, I guess you know, there's tons of Easter eggs all over the place uh, between all of Spielberg's and Lucas's movies. You can see C-3PO in the uh, Temple of Akator and uh, R2-D2. Um, there's tons in the, all the Disney parks. There's all sorts of Easter eggs for both franchises intermingling with each other. Oh, what else? What? Oh, there was an episode of Magnum P.I. called uh, Raiders oh, Legend of the Lost Art, where he got to play an Indiana Jones-like uh, figure. Nice. Giving us a what could have been for the Selick verse. Funny. Throughout the movies, if the character is wearing a lapel flower, that's the sign that they're going to betray Indy. Ah. That has stayed consistent nice. throughout the movies. Um, the submarine that Indiana Jones uh, rides across the ocean. If we're going to talk about Nuke the Fridge, how about in Raiders when he rides a submarine on the outside <laughs> of the submarine? Uh, that was actually a prop that they uh, borrowed from the set of Das Boot, mm. which is a weird little thing. Um, 
Oh my God. I don't know. I don't know what else there's. So, God, there's so much, there's so much shit. Uh, uh, there was that, uh, river Phoenix plays young Indiana Jones yep. and they did, uh, uh, they made sure to show that he gets a scar on his chin so that he can match Harrison Ford's scar. That's weird. Yeah. It's the ultimate like superhero, like origin explain every little detail of the character thing that they've since done a million times. Uh, there's an alternative universe comic series where like, uh, uh, Indiana Jones meets Chewbacca and like through time shenanigans, Chewbacca becomes Bigfoot in American legend. Uh, God damn, there's we could keep going forever. There are icebergs. There are entire books written about this franchise. It's just and uh, when all is said and done, though, these are movies. These are God. There is there is choose your own adventure books written by R.L. Stein. <laughs> we didn't even talk about the video games. That Temple of Doom game for NES sucked ass mm-hmm, mm-hmm. god it sucked ass all right now you know what yeah i'm gonna keep like running off random bits of things i read or heard about for another hour if we don't stop it right now all right well we have we must end uh uh thanks everybody for joining us patreon.com forward slash whizbrew if you'd like to further follow us and support us uh five dollars a month gets you one bonus episode a week as well as ad free episodes from these main feed shows as well as pre-sale codes for uh for our tour last podcast network.com for all of our tour dates upcoming and again that's patreon.com forward slash whizbrew follow me on twitch twitch.tv forward slash hold to nature's ho once again that's twitch.tv forward slash hold to nature's ho uh i'm streaming Monday through Friday. Jake! I simply must press the flesh again on that Patreon. It is the best way to support this podcast. It really uh, makes a massive difference in our lives. The show would not exist without our Patreon supporters. And every day I wake up and scream, thank you, Patreon supporters! Much to the horror of my beloved fiance. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at BestJakeYoung, Instagram at BestJakeYoung, and uh, Thursdays I, I'm on I'm on twitch.tv slash PuppetJared for the Cartoon Dumpster. Thursday, 7 p.m. Eastern. It's a rollicking good time where we watch weird, bad old cartoons from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. If you like this podcast, I guarantee i went full cajun with it i guarantee you will enjoy uh the puppet jared cartoon dumpster stream thursdays 5 p.m eastern twitch.tv slash puppet jared all right and always remember never stop bruising and keep on whipping nice yeah this show is made possible by listeners like you thanks to our ad sponsors you can support our shows by supporting them For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back and the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. 
Empathy is our best policy.